when a prosecutor and a defense attorney team up to solve the murder case of the year, there isn't a law, a rule, or a heart that won't be broken. Universal Pictures presents... Are you going to sleep with our client again? She's a very attractive young girl. Extremely attractive. I did not say extremely. I said just attractive. Extremely. Robert Redford. Hey! What the hell are you doing over there? I'm breaking into my car. Deborah Winger. Let's... No, don't. Don't. Don't even say it. If we go through that door, it's called breaking and entering. No, it's not breaking. It's just entering. Daryl Hannah. I didn't kill Taft. It's going to take a lot of work to convince the jury of that. In the new film from Ivan Reitman, the director of Ghostbusters, Legal Eagles. You want them on your side. Legal Eagles. I think you got everything here. Everything seems to be in order. Welcome to Reitman for the Job, where we explore the films of director Ivan Reitman. I'm Ross May, but I sign my works under the alias of... Ross May. Covering Ghostbusters was a big undertaking, everyone. Four big episodes. Six if you count the biographies and extras I did. But yes, Ghostbusters is the biggest deal in Ivan Reitman's professional life. So it's very interesting to focus on what he did immediately following that movie. We'll be covering that this entire episode. But if you want the extremely short answer to that question, what did he do following Ghostbusters' success? Ivan Reitman listened to his agent, Mike Ovitz. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Our question for today comes from Astrid Weller. You're going to have to look up that name to figure out my Simpsons joke today, folks. Astrid Weller asks, Ross, who are some of your favorite artists? <laughs> what if I just said the Ninja Turtles? You know, Renaissance artists. <clears throat> In all seriousness, I do like Michelangelo's work and saw some of his statues at the Louvre in Paris. His stuff honestly looks like people about to come to life, with real muscles and dynamic poses. Contraposto. Yes, art fans, I know a few things. Someone you might not be familiar with, Wu Guangzhong. My wife and I saw many of his original works in Hong Kong shortly after his death in 2010, and we have two reproductions of his hanging in our house. Google Twin Swallows, and you'll see his most famous piece. Lots of empty space, but it just shows a home, a tree, their reflections in the water, and two swallows flying overhead. It gives you an idea of what can be done with a minimal amount of colors, but still look beautiful, and all still is very modern and Chinese. Being a comic book writer, of course I also have lots of favorite comic book artists. Having worked for Peter Laird, I have original Ninja Turtles artwork done by Peter Laird, Kevin Eastman, and a lot of the other artists there who I really respect. Michael Dooney, You'd recognize Michael Dooney's artwork off some of the Nintendo game boxes for Ninja Turtles? I've got a Michael Dooney artwork that I really like. But my favorite comic artist is probably Jose Garcia Lopez. Ah, you DC fans know who I'm talking about. If you buy most kid products, 
a birthday card featuring Wonder Woman or a beach towel with Superman or whatever, there's a very good chance it was drawn by Garcia Lopez in the early 80s. Here, I'll make it easy on you. Google DC Style Guide and look at the images. Ah, uh, now that's how I think those superheroes should look. I have tons of respect for all other artists, of course, but many of them would even agree with me that's what Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, the rest should look like. So who are my favorite artists? Hundreds, really. But if you want to check out the quick duality of Ross, Google Twin Swallows, then Google DC Style Guide. that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. Ghostbusters. Yes, we're back. The Ghostbusters are back in theaters, and to celebrate, you can get Ghostbusters 2 items. Have we all gone mad? I guess so, Pete, because that's not all. Why not? You can show support for this podcast and even get a great-looking No Ghost Peace logo and 10 Tops trading cards. Check out patreon.com slash rossmayrider. Items available while they last. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Legal Eagles debuted in theaters June 1986. What was in the news that month? Oh man, here's some Canadian news, and something I and a lot of friends had always heard about growing up. In Edmonton, Alberta, there's the West Edmonton Mall, the largest shopping mall in North America. And yes, Americans, for whatever it's worth, we've got a bigger shopping mall than the Mall of America. We're all very proud. Anyway, I've been to the West Edmonton Mall quite a few times. It's nice. They've got a big indoor water park and what looks like a pirate ship, so that's a lot of fun. They also have an indoor amusement park, and the biggest ride there is the roller coaster called the Mindbender. I think the Mindbender might be the world's biggest indoor roller coaster, but I'm not entirely sure on that one. And so you get an idea of it, the Mindbender has three big loops. On June 14th, 1986, the last car in the roller coaster's train flew off the track and crashed into a pillar, then to the ground. Three of the four passengers in that car died. It was determined that the Mindbender had design flaws, plus there wasn't enough maintenance performed on the ride. It would reopen again in January of 1987 with new safety features and hasn't had a problem since. But when Little Ross went to the West Edmonton Mall for the rides and friends were talking about going on the Mindbender, I remembered the story of people dying on the ride. I know kids push each other to do scary things like that, but I refused just on the grounds that people had once died on it, which I think was pretty sensible. Hey Ross, what were you like as a child? Uh, sensible? Is that a personality? There's several ways to introduce the production of Legal Eagles. We can talk about post-Ghostbusters. We definitely need to talk about Agent Mike Ovitz again. But maybe we should begin with some real-life inspiration, the Mark Rothko case. Mark Rothko, 
and that's with a K, by the way. Mark Rothko was born in 1903 in Latvia and immigrated to America in 1913. You might recognize some of his artwork. He painted two or three rectangles of different colors, so very modern art. He's a prime example of someone talented, but also people outside the art scene would look at his work and say, why is this special? Why is it expensive? I can paint the same thing at home. Regardless, he died in 1970 in what was deemed a suicide. That might sound mysterious, but honestly, it probably was a suicide. He left some paintings to his children, partly to ensure their financial security. So it was a surprise when the art agents and executors of Rothko's will informed his adult children that they needed to surrender the paintings to them. Rothko had indeed signed a contract saying that his executors would establish a Rothko Foundation to exhibit and handle his hundreds of works. Meanwhile, these executors had also made contracts saying that they would only ever sell the paintings through a seller called the Marlboro Gallery and not put them for sale anywhere else on the general market. Of course, if the children were allowed to sell the paintings out in the open at auction, say at Sotheby's, they could command the highest price and probably earn millions. So, what was going on? It was determined that the executors were trying to hoard all the money for themselves, obviously. Part of their plan, the whole basis of their contract, was to sell some paintings for a fraction of their real worth. They colluded with the people at the Marlboro Gallery in New York, devaluing the prices and almost always making sure that the paintings were sold to foreign holding companies. And guess who owned those companies? The executors themselves. These people were shuffling around the ownership of the paintings, trying to obscure the fact that they still owned all of them and were buying and selling them at a fraction of their real worth, waiting for the day when they could sell some of them for real at auction and become multimillionaires and entirely cutting out the Rothko children. Fortunately, this whole scheme was exposed. Over 600 Rothko paintings were returned to his children, and the Marlboro art dealer and the executors were ordered to pay over $9 million in damages. Some paintings were sold to private collectors, however, and the Rothkos had no recourse in getting them back. To give you an idea, a Rothko painting sold by a private collector at auction went for $22 million in 2005. So that's that story. You'll see how this must have inspired the main plot of Legal Eagles. The mysterious death of an artist, missing paintings that people say a daughter has no legal right to, and owners swapping valuable paintings around so as to obscure who owns them and prevent anyone from taking them back. You know, having watched this movie now, I laugh at the name Legal Eagles. First off, I'm pretty sure someone on the 30 Rock show was thinking of this when they came up with the joke, the rural juror. Huh? Try saying that. Rural juror. Legal eagles is a little bit easier to say. But no, the real reason I laugh at this name is because this movie isn't interested in, and barely understands, the law and lawyers. There are some courtroom scenes, but this movie basically says, to hell with that, whatever we say goes. Law? We don't need no stinking laws. So this movie shouldn't have even billed itself being concerned with lawyers. No, what it's really all about is modern art. Hey audience, Picasso, Mondrian, Renoir, all your favorites are represented here. So here's the funniest thing. Okay, the credits will tell you that the story is by Ivan Reitman, Jim Cash, and Jack Epps. And that's technically true. But I can tell you who was the driving creative force at making this movie happen. 
talent agent Mike Ovitz. What happens when a multimillionaire art collector and Hollywood agent has a passion project? You get this movie. For a reminder, please go back and listen to my extra episode where I gave Mike Ovitz's biography. Trust me, he's rather interesting, and a jerk, but that's neither here nor there. Pertinent to our discussion today, Ovitz was a surprisingly good friends with Bill Murray and Dustin Hoffman, not to mention working very well with Ivan Reitman, and B, he loves modern art, you guys. Like, you don't even know. Everyone in Hollywood hates him, but if you only knew that he had this sensitive side, wanting to stare at art for hours on end. Bah. I actually do like art myself, it's just... Reading his autobiography, who is Michael Ovitz, he uses his love of art as an excuse that he's not so despicable after he spent decades treating some people like dirt. He claims his art-loving side is his real soul. And I appreciate we're all multifaceted people, but how you treat a waiter or an employee also bears your soul. When you show contempt for everyone who isn't rich or powerful, that's your true self right there, Mike Ovitz. Ahem, okay. So Mike Ovitz loves art, especially modern art, so roughly the 1860s to the 1960s or 70s. Oh, oh, I'll share one Mike Ovitz art story before we get to Legal Eagles. So Robin Williams voiced the genie for Aladdin, a great performance. But for a variety of reasons, he didn't want his name, Robin Williams, or his character, the genie, to be the big selling point of the movie. He actually did the role for not a lot of money on certain conditions, the big one being he wasn't keen on selling lots and lots of things to kids, including Burger King toys, which is exactly what happened. Another of our familiar players pops up again, Mr. Quibby himself, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Katzenberg broke all of Robin Williams' contractual requests. Katzenberg, remember, liked meatballs and purchased the rights from Ivan Reitman. Also, oddly enough, in the 90s, Mike Ovitz got the job of president at Disney when Katzenberg thought he was going to get it. Seriously, go listen to my biography episode on Mike Ovitz. Anyway, regarding the Aladdin debacle, Robin Williams was mad, so he wasn't going to voice the genie again. Mike Ovitz, genius that he is, says to Katzenberg, Hey, do you know what everybody loves? Art. Here, I've picked out a tasteful, a very nice Picasso for you. Why don't you give that to Robin as a way of apologizing? So that's what Katzenberg does, but that doesn't sway Robin Williams. Hey, look, I'd like a Picasso, but that's such a weird thing to assume Williams is going to love it just as much as you do, Mike Ovitz. To end that story, Katzenberg left Disney, then new executives apologized properly to Robin Williams, and that is what made amends. Seriously, you don't need Picasso paintings to apologize. Sometimes you just need to get rid of the person who wronged you, in this case, Jeffrey Katzenberg. I think that illustrates Mike Ovitz fairly well. Ghostbusters was riding high. In fact, this movie debuted in June of 86, and the fall of that year, the real Ghostbusters would debut on ABC. So Reitman is riding high, and is feeling pretty good about whatever he'll do next. Mike Ovitz talks to him and says, Hey, you should do a movie about my passion, the art world. Ovitz admits to this. In his book, Who is Michael Ovitz, he says that he envisioned this project and got Ivan Reitman involved first. Ovitz isn't saying it, but obviously he picked Reitman because they must have got along well, 
but also because coming off of Ghostbusters, Reitman was probably the hottest director CAA had. They didn't have Spielberg back in the 80s. Ovitz even picked out his preferred actors before bringing in writers. Legal Eagles was originally going to be a buddy comedy with Bill Murray and Dustin Hoffman. Ovitz wasn't crazy to think he could get those actors, by the way. He actually engineered Murray and Hoffman becoming friends by having them attend the same parties. He figured they would hit it off, and then they did. Ovitz even engineered Bill Murray acting in the movie Tootsie. Ovitz was something of a puppet master, often thinking he could manufacture hit movies by plugging in the right talent. This shows his inclination for a little later in life when he wanted to be in charge of a movie studio himself. Okay, okay, we'll try to move away from Mike Ovitz. Covering old biographies again, Ovitz and Reitman went to Frank Price, the same executive who said yes to Ghostbusters. Frank Price was now over at Universal, and I find it rather nice that their preference and loyalty was to the man, and not necessarily to Columbia Pictures, the company. Hey everyone, I also did a biography of Frank Price. Listen to that same episode to hear how he went from heading Columbia to Universal. Legal Eagles was even more CAA's baby than Ghostbusters was, because Ghostbusters at least began life on Dan Aykroyd's typewriter, and he didn't know where it would end up. Here, Legal Eagles was born out of Mike Ovitz's will, collaborated with Ivan Reitman to direct, and given to two CAA clients to write, Jim Cash and Jack Epps. Just saying those writers' names should clue you in that things had shifted for Ivan Reitman. Previously, he relied on his college pals Len Bloom and Dan Goldberg, and Harold Ramis to polish up scripts. But now Harold was working on his film, Club Paradise, plus helping out on a few other scripts. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with using outside writers to develop a movie, but I'm saying that this was a definite change for Reitman. He had definitely hit the big time now, and didn't need to rely on friends all the time. Let's talk about those writers, Jim Cash and Jack Epps. At the same time, they were working on drafts of Top Gun for CAA rising star Tom Cruise, of course. Immediately after this, they'd write The Secret of My Success, starring Michael J. Fox. Then they'd write Dick Tracy and Anaconda. These two always wrote as a team, and Jim Cash died in 2000. It's rather sweet, actually. Without his partner, Jack Epps shifted to teaching screenwriting. So these guys are talented. But as an ongoing theme in this movie production, being talented alone doesn't mean you're a right fit for a certain director or certain actors. That's not even an insult, just the genuine observation that you can be good at your job, but wrong for working with someone else. I mentioned already, Mike Ovitz figured it would be great to finally have his two favorite acting pals, Dustin Hoffman and Bill Murray, share equal billing in a movie. Sounds like this should all work out, right? Well, the best laid plans, everyone. Ovid says Dustin Hoffman was the first to leave the project. Now his one pal was gone, but Ivan Reitman was also buds with Bill, right? That should be extra incentive for Bill to stay on. Well, yeah, but remember Bill had been reticent about acting in Meatballs, in Stripes, and in Ghostbusters. These bigger and bigger and the biggest hits, with a director he liked working with, and every time Bill Murray was still non-committal. We might as well discuss Bill Murray during his post-Ghostbusters period. Everybody says that Bill Murray retired from acting for a while after Ghostbusters, but that's not entirely true. He and his family were living over in Paris, Bill still feeling some of that bohemian, razor's-edge feeling, 
If you haven't clued in, Bill really identifies with the Razor's Edge lead, Larry Darrell, who bums around France for part of Razor's Edge. Bill was a millionaire now, and could watch movies in French and take philosophy classes at the Sorbonne in central Paris. Hey, I've walked by there. Someday I will do a big biography on Bill Murray, but in short, it sure looks like Bill has... maybe even a healthy reaction to celebrity. He feels like he doesn't need another mega hit, and he doesn't need to always be acting. He doesn't need to be a star, or at least certainly not a conventional Hollywood star. But had he given up acting? No. When Frank Oz was filming Little Shop of Horrors over in England, they called up Bill to hop on a plane and come join in the fun for a bit part. The fact that a bunch of his friends were in the movie, like Rick Moranis, Steve Martin, James Belushi, John Candy, and Christopher Guest, that's what made him come over to film. But star in a movie? Not interested. So there was his cameo in Little Shop of Horrors that came out at the end of 86, but that aside, Bill's hiatus from acting was even shorter than you think. In March of 87, he came back to Saturday Night Live to host. And then in 88, he cameoed again in She's Having a Baby. And then he was back in the swing of things with Scrooged. Honestly, Bill Murray was away from America and the acting scene there for only about three years, not four. Okay, that all had nothing to do with legal eagles. But come on, we always want to know what guys like Bill Murray are up to. Speaking of other people. Meanwhile, Dan Aykroyd went back to working with his pal, John Landis, as soon as it was clear Hollywood executives would keep letting Landis direct. <sighs> you know, I'm not even saying this to give Dan a hard time. Reading more and more on Dan Aykroyd, I'm continually impressed at how loyal he is to his friends. He doesn't have these squabbles like Bill and Harold Ramis would develop, and he remains friends with Chevy Chase when just about nobody else can. Honestly, it's admirable. Okay, okay, Mike Ovitz got writers, got Ivan Reitman directing this project he'd like to see, but his good acting pals were a no-go. I guess during development, Ivan got to talking with legendary actor Robert Redford. I'd be interested in knowing exactly how their conversation went, but it sounds like it ended with Redford going, this could be different. I'll sign up. It helped that his fee up front was $4 million. But even money aside, I can see Robert Redford's appeal in this project. Ivan Reitman was coming off the success of Ghostbusters, the sensation of 84. Ivan wasn't a young man anymore. He was about to turn 40 when Legal Eagles debuted. But Redford probably wanted to see how a slightly younger talent would employ him. You know, keep him relevant with the hip, younger crowds of 1986. Something terribly ironic considering the way the movie plays out, but Robert Redford was also really excited at the thought of doing a proper romantic comedy. That's what he thought he was signing up for. Huh. Meanwhile, you've got Deborah Winger as the female lead. Another CAA rising star, Mike Ovitz makes it sound like he handpicked her for this. She was coming off An Officer and a Gentleman, and Terms of Endearment, where both times she was nominated for an Oscar. Oh hey, it's worth noting that Robert Redford is 19 years Deborah Winger Sr. That won't even be the main problem or anything in this movie, but it bears mentioning. For our third star, we've got Daryl Hannah. Everyone, she's Pris in Blade Runner. Wow, Ivan Reitman has worked with two replicants now from Blade Runner. Remember, he already worked with Sean Young in Stripes. But yes, Daryl Hannah was coming off a big hit herself in 84. Splash, opposite Tom Hanks. 
I might as well get this out of the way now. You see a running theme in Daryl Hannah's roles. In all of these movies, she's played naive, or some kind of innocent. I think she works really well in Blade Runner, partly because she's not the focus, but also giving things away here, folks, but she's not totally human in Blade Runner. Then you've got Splash, where she's very naive and innocent, and her character even learns to communicate in the movie. Here, she's playing naive and vulnerable again. People want to take advantage of her situation, but she's a free-spirited artist. But also, sorry, she's not very convincing as an actress. There's a man following me. I'm very worried. I loved my father a lot. I don't know what happened to his paintings. I think you're handsome, Robert Redford. Very memorable lines from Legal Eagles. I think they wanted her to seem flighty or distracted, but unfortunately Daryl Hannah ends up sounding like she's always repeating her lines. Not acting, just repeating. I don't want to be mean about this, because in very recent years she's revealed that she was diagnosed on the autism spectrum as a child. This might play into her mannerisms in all her acting roles. Sometimes it works, like Blade Runner and Splash, but I'm afraid it doesn't here. And Legal Eagles would turn out to be an unhappy shoot, which was probably unusual for Ivan coming off of working with his friends in previous films. Mike Ovitz, honestly, he's probably more open about this production than anyone else, but Ovitz says basically nobody got along. The exception might actually be Daryl Hannah, who did her role perfectly fine, but Ivan, Robert Redford, and Deborah Winger all just didn't jive with one another. And Ovitz relates a story of Winger doing that startlet thing, where she disagreed with the director and stayed in her trailer for hours while people waited. Maybe this was on her, or maybe something bad was really going down, and Ivan or Robert Redford needed to be more considerate towards her. I do not know. Much like Ghostbusters, they filmed in New York, then flew off to Los Angeles and filmed a lot of the interior scenes there, this time at Universal Studios, of course. Ivan also asked Laszlo Kovacs to return as his cinematographer. That made a lot of sense, considering Kovacs coordinated all those New York exterior shots and made it jive with the L.A. interiors. Sheldon Kahn also returned as one of the film's editors. Seriously, when you've struck gold the way you did with Ghostbusters, you probably want to keep a lot of these same folks around. In fact, working with Kahn this time was Pam Herring. Herring had edited Harold Ramis's film, National Lampoon's Vacation, and just recently, European Vacation. Ramis would have Pem Herring edit Groundhog Day, Stuart Saves His Family, and Multiplicity. After Pem's retirement, Harold would even switch to Pem's son, Craig Herring. I love this sense of continuity, you know. Joe Medjuk and Michael C. Gross were back as executive producers. No surprise there. But me being a kid, remember, I love it that when they were in L.A., they were also overseeing the real Ghostbusters cartoon that would debut that fall. Hey, get this. Guess who was the production designer on Legal Eagles? Ready? John DeKeer. But wait, you say. Ross, you said Ghostbusters was the last film John DeKeer really worked on. Yes, that's right. We've switched to his son now, John DeKeer Jr. Ah, that's fun. I'm afraid I didn't even notice. John DeKeer Jr. was assisting his dad for years on movies, including Ghostbusters. With his dad's retirement, Jr. was in charge of production. The apartment sets, but more importantly the courtroom set and art gallery, which has lots of stairs and hallways winding this way and that. It's supposed to be a dynamic, different sort of space. 
John DeKeer Jr. would continue working for years, then retire in the 2000s. Of a little surprise is Boss Films, back doing special effects. Okay, I didn't really lay this down as plainly as I could have for Ghostbusters, because I've never heard Richard Edlund and others go on record. The lowdown probably is that Ivan Reitman was a novice to the world of special effects. I mean, part of the whole reason he thought Ghostbusters could be finished in a year is because he didn't really know any better, or that things could have gone spectacularly wrong. The word is that Ivan kept on adding a shot, adding a shot, kind of thinking that things would just magically happen, without any concern for the time or budget involved. And then Richard Edlund had to put his foot down. Stop it! These are the shots. These are the models. Approve things, because we don't have any more time to meet the premiere date. And they very nearly didn't meet that premiere date, and that lateness was not Boss's fault. I mean, it was the schedule in general, but also... Ivan not realizing that weeks were required to complete some of these special effects shots. Have I got something a bit wrong in that description? Maybe. I know Richard Edlund and other boss folks have spoken candidly to some people, but just never on record, which is why you'll never read a book that just lays that out. After Ghostbusters and the film 2010, Boss worked on Fright Night. Then for 86, they were increasing their workload with Poltergeist 2, Big Trouble in Little China, and more. One of the movies here was Legal Eagles, which as far as I can tell didn't require much from Boss. There's a matte shot towards the end of the movie, a large piece of art on a public street, and it's kind of apparent it's not there in real life. And you know, that might be it. I don't believe Boss was in charge of the pyrotechnics in this movie, but if I'm wrong, I apologize. I'll do my best to research this as we get to Ghostbusters 2 in 1989. Again, this is unverified information, but it sounds like Ivan Reitman didn't appreciate Richard Edlund needing to be so firm, telling him he was being unrealistic about his requests on the original Ghostbusters. So Reitman went to their main competitors, ILM, for Ghostbusters 2. Assuming I have this story all correct, Reitman might have only gone back to Boss Films for Legal Eagles because it was a light workload and ILM might have been booked up again. It could have been a matter of necessity for this film to go with Boss. Also, a final surprise, maybe? Elmer Bernstein in his final collaboration with Ivan Reitman. This is the most bittersweet element to Legal Eagles. This is the final collaboration between Ivan Reitman and Elmer Bernstein. I really should circle back someday and do a biography on Bernstein. Just to focus on the 80s, Bernstein discovered the Own Martinot and asked his good friend and protege, Cynthia Miller, to master it. She would play it for Heavy Metal, Ghostbusters, The Black Cauldron over at Disney, and now Legal Eagles. That kind of brings up my main point about the score to this film. Bernstein is always top-notch, but he's not fitting in as well in this movie as he has in the past. Heavy Metal had weird sci-fi goings-on in the Tarna segment, so the own Martinal fit there. And I think Ghostbusters was his perfect score with the instrument. For years, the theremin and own Martinal were used with a heavy hand in B-movies about ghosts and aliens. But in Ghostbusters, Bernstein took that association and made something beautiful and spooky. The Black Cauldron also fits, with witches and the undead, so his music totally works there as well. In fact, a person could argue that Elmer Bernstein's score is the best element to the Black Cauldron. Now we're at Legal Eagles, and you can tell Bernstein still wants to play around with this instrument, and the DX7 synthesizer as well for that matter, 
but I think he probably should have pulled back. There's nothing spooky about this film. His main theme is also so bright and cheerful, it's kind of funny in the wrong way when they're trying to discuss serious matters. Not a bad score by any means, but a less appropriate one than what Elmer Bernstein usually put out. And I still wish I knew exactly why Elmer Bernstein and Ivan Reitman stopped working together. Okay, I'll speak plainly again. If you listen to David W. Collins' The Soundtrack Show, his episodes on Ghostbusters detail some of Bernstein's unhappiness at the pop songs being littered throughout the movie. Is that what broke their working relationship? I don't know, because Ivan got him doing music for this movie, but then did Elmer finally say, you know what, I'm good. Was it a delayed response? Just annoyance at his work being seen as a secondary concern to pop songs? I don't know. This is one of my top questions for Ivan Reitman someday. Here, this is a scene in the movie, but listen for the Own Martinal and DX7 popping in at places. Logan, Logan, don't lose him, all right? I'm not gonna lose him. Where'd he go? He's, he's right up there, see? See, just up ahead. Go. No, no, not that car. It's the gray Mercedes. Now, the idea is not to get too close, so don't get too close. Oh, is that the idea? Logan, hurry, but don't get too close. Just ease back a little bit. That's it. All right. Good. You're doing good. Okay. Pull over to the right so we can make a right-hand turn. Can you do that? Can you do that? What are you doing? Logan. Logan, get back in the car. You're driving. I don't want to drive. Oh, you seem to have a pretty clear idea about how to do all this. Go I thought you drive. were doing great. Really, get back in the car. Oh, it's your turn. Really, drive. I can't. What? I can't drive. Oh. Lights changing. Let's watch the movie together. Oh, I will be calling out artwork or artists as I see them. I'm actually a bit proud. I was able to name a lot of these before Deborah Winger's character names artists in the movie. But my point. Sometimes I will say, oh, that's a real Picasso. Oh, this one here in the apartment? That's a fake Picasso. When I say real, what I mean is Picasso actually painted that picture, and it exists somewhere. But I have no idea if the movie production is filming the real deal, or just a nice reproduction. Got that? I mean it's real somewhere in the world. When they name something and I say it's a fake Picasso, I mean the movie production hired a talented artist to create something in the style of Picasso. There, I think we understand one another. Let's get this movie rolling. It's 1968, and we start on a New York set that's actually the Universal Backlot. There's a tracking shot, and we follow party-goers as they enter an industrial or warehouse building someone's converted into an art studio and living quarters. Okay, right off the bat. New York City in the 60s, an industrial space someone's living in, a big party full of artists. You're supposed to make the connection that this is like one of Andy Warhol's parties at the factory. The factory was the name everyone called his studio and home because he lived, worked, and partied in a building like this one. Remember when I covered Ghostbusters and said there were no opening credits with the librarian, despite them opening up with a tracking shot that obviously gave Ivan that option? Well here, we open with a tracking shot going into the building, and we see all these names pop up on the screen. Either method is fine, credits or no credits, but I think it shows that Ivan saw this was a more traditional film 
while Ghostbusters had a little bit more of that blockbuster vibe going on. This said, I'm amused Ivan starts both Ghostbusters and Legal Eagles with tracking shots following people walking. He realized it's a good way to start things. And this party is a bit weird, everybody, but not in the way you'd think with debauchery or drugs. No, all these artsy, bohemian types are coming to party, and it's for a little girl's eighth birthday. Ha, <laughs> that's a little bit interesting of a reveal. In the crowd, you see some of the suspects for the rest of the movie, including Superman's villain, Zod himself, Terrence Stamp, wearing a long wig like a hippie. I think that there is supposed to be a joke, just the idea that Terrence Stamp would ever have shoulder-length hair. The dad, Mr. Dearden, has a painting that he dedicates on the back to his daughter Chelsea. That's very sweet. Also, I find it a bit funny. I know a painting from your father is special, but also, no little kid wants that from their mom or dad. If I gave my kids a comic book I wrote, they'd say, Thanks. Now where's my toy? Something for the plot. The mystery of this movie that I really want to stress. Dearden signs the painting in full view of, like, hundreds of witnesses, and also shows them the painting. This will be important for us to remember as we go forward. Really quickly, the dad and daughter didn't act in a whole lot of other roles. The dad, Dearden, is played by James Hurdle, and young Chelsea is played by Mary Griffin. 1986 was actually the last year James Hurdle did any movie acting. And while Mary Griffin kept acting, I can't even see what she looks like grown up today. Little Chelsea gets tucked into bed. Later, the partygoers have left. And there's smoke! It's hard to tell, but it's Terrence Stamp who rushes in and saves her. While over in the studio area, it appears like a man has been beating up her dad. Beams are falling in dramatic fashion, and the men leave Dearden to die. Outside in the movie lot, the building facade is engulfed by flames, and it's impressive to look at. Lots of fire coming from the windows. So, that's the setup for the rest of the movie. Chelsea went through a traumatic event, lost her father, who sure looks to us like he's been killed. A news broadcast also informs us that all his paintings were lost in the fire. Jump ahead to the present, the modern year of 1986. Madonna is at the top of the charts. The Nintendo Entertainment System is picking up steam, and Transformers are the hottest toy for kids. What a time to be alive. We meet the attorney and young divorced dad, Tom Logan, played by Robert Redford. I love it. Okay, sorry I'm being a bit mean here, but he's 49 or 50, so it totally makes sense if he has a young teenage daughter. But he's supposed to be giving off these friendly but inept dad vibes like he's 20 years younger and doesn't know how to handle a kid on his own. Oh, what's a handsome working father to do? Also, okay everyone, I was making my notes for this movie and writing down, Tom Logan goes to trial, Laura Kelly investigates this warehouse, Chelsea Dearden goes here, and then reading over my notes again I was wondering, who the heck are all these people? They need more memorable names, like Venkman. Anyway, look, I'm just going to refer to these characters by their actors' names. Robert Redford is playing Tom Logan, but who cares? This Logan doesn't become Wolverine. Let's just call him Robert Redford so you can picture him in your mind. Got it? Young, totally with the times, Robert Redford. Heh, I'm amused by his apartment set. One wall is nothing but law books. He's a lawyer, in case you didn't know everybody. The teenage daughter is played by Jennifer Dundas. She'd go on to play Diane Keaton's daughter in First Wives Club. As an adult, she's been in two different Law & Orders, NCIS, Desperate Housewives, 
Ooh, Nurse Jackie. So Jennifer Dundas has been around, and here she's Robert Redford's precocious daughter. But oh no, there's smoke! Robert Redford burned their breakfast! Oh, what's a young, virile, divorced dad to do? He also accidentally takes his daughter's pink case to work instead of his own briefcase. It's a wonder this guy is supposed to be one of New York's finest prosecutors. He has a secretary, played by Christine Baranski. She's a lot of fun, and you know her to see her. She's performed on stage a lot, but she's one of those ladies in the Mamma Mia movies. She's an over-the-top actress in Bowfinger. She played the friend on the 90s show Sybil. Oh, she's the lady camp counselor in Adam's Family Values, opposite Ghostbusters 2 actor Peter McNichol, oddly enough. That's Christine Baranski. I was hoping we'd see more scenes with her. Maybe she'd do something funny or assist with the case in the movie. But she's basically only here to establish Robert Redford is enough of a big shot to have a secretary. They don't really use her, which is a shame. In a court trial, we meet defense attorney Laura Kelly. But who cares about that name? The actress is Deborah Winger. I think her introduction displays some of the problems we'll see throughout the movie. She's supposed to be this flinty, tough-as-nails lawyer, but the gag is she's defending a guy pawning off stolen stereos and TVs, and her argument is incredibly weak. Throughout the whole film, I think she's supposed to be the straight woman to the comedy, but then Robert Redford isn't particularly funny, and she often needs to be the butt of a lame joke. Even just structurally, these characters are having problems out of the gate. Speaking of indicators for the rest of the movie, walking out of the courtroom, Redford comments on someone named Ovitz needing to be arraigned. An inside joke behind the real driving force to this movie. Oh, immediately after this, Deborah Winger says she wants to discuss something with Redford, but he brushes her off. Redford goes to a nice restaurant for lunch, and who should he pass but Brian Doyle Murray? Ah, uh, at least we have a Murray for this film. He doesn't have his mustache. That's a shame. Redford goes to dine with his boss, the district attorney. And get this, he's played by Stephen Hill. Trust me, you know Stephen Hill. He was the original leader on the Mission Impossible TV show, but, 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 he played the district attorney in Law and Order from 1990 to 2000. He doesn't try the cases. The prosecutors step into his office and then he gives them advice. That guy. He's basically playing the same character here, four years before Law and Order started. He has the same job, so I have to wonder if Dick Wolf and the casting saw Legal Eagles and thought he'd be good as their Law and Order DA. Stephen Hill tells Robert Redford he'd like Redford to become the next district attorney after Hill retires. That evening, there's a fancy banquet for lawyers, with the intention that Stephen Hill will make a case for Robert Redford taking his job. Who should crash the party but Deborah Winger, with Daryl Hannah following in a slinky black dress. I like it. They come up to the front, and everyone's murmuring, like them walking to the front during a speech is so outrageous, but they don't really do anything outrageous. To the point, Deborah Winger whispers up to Stephen Hill that she's representing Daryl Hannah. If you can't figure out by now, Daryl Hannah will be playing the daughter of that artist who died at the start of the movie, the one whose paintings are supposed to all be destroyed. So she's the little girl Chelsea. But seriously, if I tell you Daryl Hannah, you'll probably remember better. Deborah Winger then says if Stephen Hill and Robert Redford don't start talking about the case immediately, Winger has arranged to have a TV press conference interrupt the banquet right then and there. She immediately proceeds to do this, so Robert Redford needs to jump in and says he'll be personally handling whatever their case is. This is all... okay. 
The idea is that he brushed her off before, so Deborah Winger did something a little outrageous to force them to sit down together with Daryl Hannah. But the thing is, this moment isn't funny. He might as well have agreed to meet them earlier. This doesn't really serve the plot or the supposed comedy. So after the banquet, our three leads, Robert Redford, the prosecutor, Deborah Winger, the tough-as-nails defense attorney, and Daryl Hannah all sit down for cocktails and to discuss what's up. Hannah is accused of going to the apartment of a man named Forrester and attempting to steal a painting there. Okay, for the record, and so there's no misunderstandings, you are entitled to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be held against you. And if you're not exactly thrilled with your attorney, one will be provided for you. Oh, no, I like her. Thanks. Did you steal the painting? No. Yes. Yes, but no. Well, which is it? Both. Right, that, this is going to be a waste of my time. I can feel it. I did try to take the painting, but it already belonged to me. Can you prove that? My father gave me that painting when I was eight years old. He even dedicated it to me on the back with writing. All anyone has to do is look. Is there any other proof that that painting must belong to you? My father kept a journal. Chelsea, you never told me about that. There were sketches of that painting in the journal. Beside one of them, he wrote for Chelsea's eighth birthday. I'd like to see the journal. It's in my apartment. come by any time. I'll be up there soon. Again, that's supposed to be the comedy, getting flummoxed at expressing whether she really committed a crime because the painting is supposed to be hers. Oh, Hannah is also totally into the young, roguish Robert Redford and plays footsie with him under the table. So we have our mystery. Where are these missing paintings? Robert Redford, doing something I think no prosecutor has ever actually done, agrees to team up with Deborah Winger and they'll investigate. The next day they go to visit Forrester, played by John McMartin. I wonder if McMartin was pals with Robert Redford. McMartin was in All the President's Men and Brubaker, both Redford vehicles. But he was a New York actor and did a lot on Broadway. He died in New York in 2016. In Forrester's apartment, we set up what will be a running motif in this movie, entering spaces with lots of famous works of modern art. I spotted Roy Lichtenstein immediately in this guy's apartment. It's Girl in Window from 1963. Like most of Lichtenstein's art, it looks like a blown-up panel from a comic book. This is of a woman with her arms crossed and limited colors, again, like a comic book. I think Lichtenstein is still celebrated in the fancy art community, but comic book fans have largely turned on him. Good for Lichtenstein for trying to say comic illustrations could be considered art, you know, furthering the pop art movement of people like Andy Warhol, but Lichtenstein would just enlarge and copy the work of other artists, without permission or compensation. I'd say the people he copied, Tony Abruzzo, Russ Heath, Joe Kubert, and Jack Kirby, they all deserve way more praise and money. But the plot. This man, Forrester, is dodgy and immediately says he doesn't own the painting Daryl Hannah tried to steal. Oh, he used to own it, but an art gallery agreed to trade it for a Picasso. We then get to see his supposed Picasso, which, by the way, I'm fairly certain is not a real Picasso. As in, this isn't even a reproduction, just something made for the movie. But it is good, and it's obviously based on Picasso's surrealist style. In fact, you can tell it's going off a real portrait woman with a straw hat on a flowery background from 1938. An artist was definitely looking at that artwork, woman with a straw hat, to make this piece for the movie. 
I like it how Deborah Winger immediately recognizes it as a Picasso, and Redford goes, Huh. It's good. He's the more red-blooded American who doesn't know what passes for high-class art. So, Forrester doesn't have this painting, but the fact that he traded the art so soon after Daryl Hannah tried to steal it should let you know that something is up. We go to an art gallery, which is kind of a neat set with multiple levels and weird curved spaces. This is a set, but you could see it plausibly being used as a real art gallery space. And who owns this snooty art gallery? Why, none other than Zod himself, Terrence Stamp. Aw, he's lost his hippie wig. Here's also where we, the audience, get to be introduced to some of the big names in modern art. The weird white sculptures with black outlines are by Jean Dubuffet, who had just died in 1985. He did a lot of these. I like his sculptures because they look like drawings you've scribbled in marker, but they've come to life as 3D objects. It's kind of a neat effect. They also pass by an Alexander Calder, famous for making mobiles into art. Uh, something you might be familiar with. If you've watched the Simpsons episode where Lisa wants to see the Orb of Isis, at the end she and Homer break into a museum by climbing up a giant version of a Calder mobile. It's clever. Here in the movie, the mobile either is, or at least is supposed to closely resemble, his 19 white discs from 1961. In the background, the painting is another Picasso, this time a real one, or at least a real reproduction, you know what I mean. It's half-nude lady with a hat seated in a red chair. I wouldn't be surprised if this was Mike Ovitz's own possession. Ha, hey, can you imagine posing for Picasso? Strip down naked for him, and then he paints you as a collection of weird shapes. Uh, thanks. I'm flattered. Terrence Stamp walks in, owner of the art gallery and obviously a villain. You can tell how evil he is by being English. He says schedule and everything. There's more comedy of Robert Redford being clueless about art. He can't recognize a Picasso on site, and he leans up against a sculpture. Pfft, what a rube. What an all-American, handsome, high-powered lawyer and rube. There's a colorful sculpture in Terence Stamp's office. He calls it a Bertolini, which confused me. In art, the most famous Bertolini is Lorenzo Bertolini, a neoclassical sculptor who was born in 1777. He didn't sculpt abstract, colorful things like this. He made, you know, people, going for that ancient Greek and Roman style, hence him being a neoclassical. It took me until late in the movie to realize they're inventing a made-up artist here, a fake Bertolini, which they're name-dropping along with all these other real artists. That's perfectly fine, but it's so weird that they named their fake person Bertolini when that's the name of a very famous sculptor. I find this another small fault in the movie. It's a confusing choice. We get to the punch. Terrence Stamp knew Daryl Hannah and her late father, which is why he's so interested in whatever remains of the dad's artwork. Yes, he admits that he traded a Picasso for a painting by the dad. Redford and Deborah Winger look at it from the front. Okay, now they request to see the reverse, looking for a message for the daughter. This might actually be the funniest joke in the movie, which isn't saying much. Terrence Stamp says Redford is refreshing because most people are only interested in the front of paintings. But they go ahead and reverse it, and there's no inscription. Well, guess that's the end of that mystery. Redford even steps out of the gallery and tells Deborah Winger as much. Case closed. Time for Ross's commentary. 
you might have noticed a problem with this mystery. Winger and Redford don't know what the painting they're after looks like, only that it has a message to Daryl Hannah on the back. They should have asked her what the painting looks like, or better yet, interview some of the hundreds of people who saw the painting, front and back, at the party in 1968. All you need to do is find a couple of those people, and they could be your witnesses if you ever do find the right painting. <sighs> when your detectives are kind of dumb, and there's a much easier way to solve things, this is a problem. Also, I'll lay down another problem on you right now. So in the opening scene, we don't see the front of this very special painting. Okay, come this scene, we also don't see the front of the painting that Terrence Stamp shows. Ah, as a viewer, I think I got this. The movie is developing a mystery, so maybe the content of the artwork itself will play into solving something. Maybe? Well, I'll spoil things for you. No, the painting is the prize at the end of the movie, the MacGuffin, but it doesn't solve anything else. Oh, okay. Well, then it'll be part of the emotional climax then, right? We won't see the painting for the entire movie, then Daryl Hannah and the audience will all see it at the end, and that'll bring us emotional closure, right? Also, no. They don't show this painting for the entire movie. It's such a weird choice. They just had to paint something that looked kind of nice. Just make Daryl Hannah and the audience feel satisfied. We finally see this thing that everyone's been talking about, talking about, but they never do it. It's bizarre. I'd go on about this, but I guess there's nothing else to say. I don't know why Reitman never shows us this amazing, wonderful painting. Let's keep going. Redford says the case is closed. Winger disagrees, but can't do anything else about it at the moment. They both head home for the night, and we get into... Um, romantic comedy stuff, I suppose? They both can't sleep that night, so you see them both getting up and being awkward. We're supposed to see that they're compatible, but what we're really seeing is that they're similar when they're entirely separate from one another. They're not trading barbs, so there's nothing really romantic about this. It's also not particularly comedic. Deborah Winger's content is less funny than it is gross, with her eating gross food in bed like uncooked hot dogs. Yuck. They both watch TV, and Singin' in the Rain comes on, and they both sing or dance along with it. Ah, uh, I guess I was mistaken then and they're a perfect match for each other after all. Robert Redford does some tap dancing. I looked up if he was trained in this at all, but every combination of Redford and tap dancing leads me back to this movie, so I don't believe it's really a passion of his. Something I noticed in this scene, Redford's apartment has paintings on most of the walls. They're all fine, tasteful. But it made me think, he should probably not have paintings, or else have really bad ones. A framed movie poster of... I don't know, an old western or something. One of those sad clown paintings, that'd be good there. You don't need to comment on it, but if one of the gags is that Redford doesn't appreciate good art, either remove art from his home, or else give him something bad so we can all chuckle at that. Now for your film noir, private dick content, everybody. Femme fatale, at least I think that's what they're going for, but femme fatale Daryl Hannah shows up. A man's been following her, she says, and she's scared. Huh. She doesn't sound very distressed. She sounds like she's flatly stating her lines. After taking a look around outside, Redford says he'll drive her home. Late at night, the street is all hosed down outside of Daryl Hannah's place. I talked about this for the night scenes in Ghostbusters as well, how movie productions would always get streets wet to make them look better. Just like her dad used to, 
Daryl Hannah lives in an industrial loft, back when living in a loft in New York was bohemian and possible in the 80s, and not, you know, worth millions of dollars now. Strange, beautiful Daryl Hannah isn't a painter or a sculptor, but a performance artist. She puts on a show for Robert Redford. I like her performance art, which is supposed to be weird, but it's so one-to-one -one with the character's history that you can easily understand it. She sets a giant paper cake on fire, then a paper house, and finally a large picture of herself. Over a song, her voice talks about people not helping a woman in distress. Here's a clip immediately following her performance art. Listen to Elmer Bernstein's music. Those low, almost groaning sounds of the cello are very similar to the sounds of ghosts and monsters arriving in Ghostbusters. What would you think? I think I'm uncomfortable. Good. Good. Yeah, good. That's what I'm trying to do. Challenge your perspective. Daryl Hannah kissed Robert Redford there, if you can't tell. Redford heads out, but notices someone is indeed tailing Daryl Hannah and is watching her apartment from the street. Redford sneaks from the side, says hi, and asks if there's anything interesting up there. This is kind of funny. Unintentionally funny, I mean. The guy standing there goes and shoots at Redford, then runs off. If you're a bad guy, this was a stupid move. You could easily say, what? I'm waiting for a friend. Or better yet, mind your own business, guy. You shoot at this guy, you're giving away that people really are after Daryl Hannah. Redford calls Deborah Winger and gets her answering machine. Huh, here's a neat thing I noticed. She has a bottle of Paul Newman vinaigrette or salad dressing or something. There's a celery stalk stuck in the top of it. Of course, Robert Redford and Paul Newman were great friends, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 69 was one of their favorite movies and favorite experiences working together. So here, someone decided to put in one of Paul Newman's products into the movie. Actually, this might have been one of Mike Ovitz's doings again. After Dustin Hoffman and Bill Murray, Paul Newman was probably Ovitz's closest acting friend. Remember, Ovitz was also the guy who insisted on putting Coke cans everywhere in Ghostbusters. And aside, those Newman's own products are really good. They make my favorite store-bought salsa and barbecue sauce. I know they're a bit pricier, but I'd recommend them. Also, a totally cool dude, Paul Newman could have profited off his salad dressings and salads and all that, but he just went, nah, I'm rich enough. So Newman's own actually sends its net profits to charity. Awesome. You can see how much I think of this movie. 
I'm stopping to talk about my favorite barbecue sauces. The next morning, Brian Dennehy shows up, claiming to be a cop. Or is he? You've seen Brian Dennehy and stuff, but he's generally not the handsome leading man. He's usually a heavy. In Tommy Boy, the Chris Farley movie, he plays Farley's father, which works when you see both of those guys. Oh, Dennehy plays the father rat in Ratatouille. There you go. We also see in this scene that Deborah Winger's character has fancy art on her wall, as opposed to Redford's more stock paintings. But she's also a slob and has food and empty bottles everywhere. Yuck. Speaking of yuck, I think we're supposed to find it funny that she's hungover. She runs to the bathroom and we hear her retch. Like, is that a joke? Just that she's hungover? Anyway, policeman Brian Dennehy doesn't actually have a lot to say. Back in the day, he believed Daryl Hannah's dad, the artist, was murdered, but his investigation got buried. He's brought all his paperwork to Deborah Winger and asks her to read it. So long, Brian Dennehy is out of here. More comedy, I guess. Deborah Winger is rushing through the courthouse looking for Robert Redford. She interrupts him as he's questioning a witness during a trial, apologizes to the judge, and then they both just leave. Huh. Look, it's a movie. I'm not going to complain about court cases aren't really like this, but I just don't see any reason to this. If I was Redford, I'd say, hey, I definitely want to talk about the painting issue. Just give me an hour and then we'll get to it. I guess this is supposed to be spontaneous, unexpected, but instead I just find it ringing false and very weird. But anyway, the mystery. What the cop gave Deborah Winger was an insurance file, listing all of the paintings destroyed and not destroyed in the fire, with images of each. It turns out the painting that Terence Stamp showed them is indeed genuine, but it was listed as destroyed in the fire. So obviously someone stole it and got away with theft by saying the painting no longer existed. Hmm. The game is afoot. They go to Sotheby's auction house. They're selling a very nice Claude Monet, in the Woods at Giverny, from 1887. This movie is all about modern art, so Manet is way on the earlier side of modern art. I really like this painting. It's just two women. One's reading, the other is painting her and the surrounding nature. Cool of Manet to just paint women, you know, doing stuff. I did a bit of sleuthing myself, and I'm pretty sure this auction scene was filmed in LA. The Los Angeles County Museum of Art owns this painting. In fact, it might be a fair guess that they just filmed in that museum and pretended it was an auction house. The next painting that comes up is Renoir. It's Two Girls Reading, also owned by the L.A. County Museum of Art. But enough appreciating. The lawyers grill Terence Stamp while he's sitting in the auction, within earshot of his rich contemporaries. Sort of like the previous interruption of the trial scene, I get it that they want to make the questioning interesting. I also have no love for rich snobs, but this just comes off as rude that they don't ask him to step aside with them before they accuse him in front of plenty of other people. Again, to me, it just makes the lawyers look like amateurs. So they step to the back and Deborah Winger is a bit more upfront. We think you stole the paintings that are supposed to be destroyed. I love it that Terrence Stamp threatens both of their careers. Neither of you will ever practice law again. Uh, okay, Zod. Look, I know you're rich, and a bigwig in the art community, but Robert Redford is friends with the DA. Redford could probably get a hold of the mayor or governor if he felt like it. It feels like Redford has a lot more power over Terrence Stamp, so this is kind of funny. 
It's really a contrivance for the movie, trying to make the lawyers the underdogs, but just adding to a list of things that ring false. Redford says he'll serve a subpoena to Terrence Stamp in the morning. Make sure you have your past five years of records in order. Later. The two walk outside, impressed with each other for once. But wouldn't you know it, they spot Terrence Stamp rushing to a car, so they tail him in Redford's car. They follow him to a warehouse at the Brooklyn Port Authority, and Deborah Winger charges on in, even though Redford points out it's breaking and entering. Stamp doesn't notice the two sneaky lawyers, but goes to a filing cabinet and appears to deposit a box inside. Then he gets out of there and locks the garage door behind him. Oh great, now they're locked in here. But Deborah Winger looks in the filing cabinet and discovers the files thereafter. Terrence Stamp, Forrester, that's the guy from one scene who traded and got a Picasso, right? And a third man named Joseph Brock. These three men formed an art firm in the 1960s. Okay, but who's this Joseph Brock? He hasn't shown up in the movie yet. But wait, no time for that now. Gah! Terrence Stamp didn't leave a box of incriminating evidence. He left sticks of dynamite with a timer. Run away! Let's forget about the documents that we need! They're perfectly framed in the shop, but who wants to grab them? They try the garage door, but it's locked and the chain won't release it. How can they escape? Here's the big stunt in the film, everybody. They bust through the garage door, driving a forklift. It's a good-looking stunt. Must have been done with stunt people wearing wigs, of course. They burst through the door, and then there's an explosion behind them, so it had to be done perfectly. The kind of awkward thing is, you're supposed to understand that they're going so fast, so Redford shouts, jump, and then they bail out into the water as the forklift drives off the edge of the pier. But of course, this isn't all in one shot so it's just super obvious they decided to drive the thing into the harbor on a different stunt to add even more drama. I'm just saying it's all cut together in such a way that it doesn't feel like it makes sense. It's just two separate events. The explosion of the building is pretty good, though. They really did blow up that building. In the only extra feature on the disc, which is a TV spot around seven minutes long, Ivan and crew talk about building a warehouse on top of a warehouse. I think he means that there was a real, smaller warehouse, and they built something they could blow up around it. And the explosion looks good. Kaboom! Redford and Winger are okay, and end up at a police station. We hear the chief of police is cheesed off at them, but Redford's ready to press charges against Terrence Stamp. Who shows up but the cop, played by Brian Dennehy? He elaborates on the evil partnership we just learned about. Stamp and the guy Forrester lied to the IRS and set up their third partner, the mysterious Joseph Brock, to go to jail for all of it. He says Brock was in jail in 1968 when the dad died in that fire. He also says Joseph Brock developed cancer and is already dead, so scratch him off your suspect list. <clears throat> I think you and I are movie detectives enough to know that when a character says, oh, this guy that we've been bothering to name in the movie... Yeah, he died years ago, so you can cross him off your suspect list. Well, you and I can figure out that for a movie, we should be thinking about that person. Meanwhile, Daryl Hannah grabs a handgun. Dun, dun, dun. And she goes to the Hotel Stansbury. Not a real hotel in New York, by the way. She goes to room 605, and who's inside but Terrence Stamp. Dun, dun, dun. What's going on? Back to domestic scenes with Redford and his pretend daughter. Okay, this scene isn't funny. It doesn't make me laugh, but I'm afraid it's funnier than all the scenes of him with Deborah Winger. He and his daughter talk a bit about how his job does bump into politics, 
so then she asks him what sexual politics means. And he's all dad and flustered. I mean, what do you say to your daughter when she asks you sex questions? He's a 50-year-old man. Cut him a break here. Knock, knock at the door. Oh, thank God. Redford doesn't have to talk to his daughter about sex. What? Oh no, it's Daryl Hannah, soaking wet from the rain. From last scene, she was trying to get Stamp to tell her where her father's paintings were. But he took her gun, hurt her, and was about to call the cops when she got away. Uh, hi, go use the bathroom. The daughter is kind of funny again. Is that your girlfriend? No, but you be on your best behavior. You too, Dad. As in, see, I know you'd be interested in having sex with her, Dad. These scenes with the daughter are so short, and they're not laugh-out-loud hilarious, but they're wittier and have more going on than the ones with Deborah Winger. The ex-wife shows up to pick up the daughter. Mom here is played by Canadian actress Sarah Botsford. Guess what, everybody? Sarah Botsford has acted in a TV adaptation of Anne of Green Gables. Most Canadian actors have. The mom gets mad and storms off with the daughter when she sees Daryl Hannah in a state of undress. Redford gets Daryl Hannah set up in a fold-out couch for the night. What do you think of me? Uh, interesting. So he's resisting her, and frankly, there's not a whole lot of chemistry. I keep thinking I have this movie figured out. Here, because there's so little chemistry, so little of a connection between Redford and Daryl Hannah, I assumed he was going to clumsily resist her for the whole movie. But the very next scene, maybe 30 seconds later, she comes into his bedroom and kisses him. Huh. They had so little going on between them, I was thinking maybe this would be a fake-out now, an imagined dream by one of them. But no, cut to the next morning, and they had sex. In busts two cops who arrest her for the murder of Terrence Stamp. What? See again, something that's supposed to be funny, but isn't really to me. Here the stakes are high, and the two of them have been caught in flagrant delicto. You know, uh, in the act. Well, not literally in the act, but close enough, right after. Redford ends up in his boss's office, Stephen Hill, the DA. But yes, repeating the fact from the cops again, Terrence Stamp, who was alive when Daryl Hannah went to confront him with a gun, is now dead. Redford ends up in his boss's office, Stephen Hill, the DA. Huh. Since it's Stephen Hill, this just looks like a really great guest spot on Law & Order because they've got Robert Redford as the guest star. They do give Hill one of the better zingers in the film. Damn it, when we service this city, we do it with our pants on. Get it because service... Uh, well, yeah. Double entendres. I like it that Redford is surprised that his boss's first instinct is to suspend him. What? I mean, yeah, you were in bed with a suspect. Of course you're suspended. But Redford is shocked. Shocked, I say. Better yet, go Stephen Hill, you're fired. Redford is packing up his office while a rival lawyer gloats. In comes Deborah Winger. Here's the deal, Redford. We know Daryl Hannah is being framed for murder. Since you can't be a prosecutor, come join Winger for the defense. If the two of us can clear Daryl Hannah, you should be able to get your job back at the DA's office. Wait, really? See, like, in terms of Robert Redford's job, the issue isn't whether or not Daryl Hannah is guilty. The issue is Redford involved himself with a woman accused of attempted theft and murder. The concern is that Redford is displaying bad judgment, breaking his code of ethics, and maybe going lenient on the accused. That fact will not change whether Daryl Hannah is found innocent or guilty. 
You two lawyers can clear her of the murder charge, but Redford still broke the attorney's code of ethics. He can't magically get his jaw back if she's innocent. Additionally, I'm pretty sure Robert Redford pointedly cannot help with the defense either. He's exposing himself to a conflict of interest again because now he's slept with the defendant, so he shouldn't be representing her. Eh, but this movie keeps going, so Robert Redford goes to Deborah Winger's small offices and is going to work with her. There's one okay joke. They're discussing any dirty trick to get Daryl Hannah found innocent. Redford says, anything to get the client off, huh? Winger tells him, you're a defense attorney now. You're supposed to get the client off. Uh, see, that's not bad wordplay. Getting off? But Winger probably should have emphasized some words to prove she was making a joke, and Redford should have looked embarrassed after being reminded of what he's done. But they barrel through, so I bet a lot of people didn't even notice there was a double entendre flying by there. Okay, we've got little under a half hour left, and the movie finally turns into a courtroom drama. Oh hey, I got excited at the judge. It's Roscoe Lee Brown. Oh man, he had the best voice. He's in Alfred Hitchcock's Topaz. He was on The Cosby Show for an episode, and lots of Shakespeare and other stage productions. But his voice was just fantastic. He voiced that goofy, silvery cave robot in Logan's Run, if you've ever seen Logan's Run. And remember that 90s Spider-Man cartoon? He played Kingpin. I don't know how you manage that shot, but I'm pulling the plug now. Did you really think you could defeat Kingpin so easily? Peekaboo, big guy. But it gets better. Executive producers Michael C. Gross and Joe Medjuk must have remembered Roscoe Lee Brown's great voice. Because two years later, in 1988, he'd voice Winston Zeddemord's father on The Real Ghostbusters. It's the episode, The Brooklyn Triangle. You really think your buddies are coming down here to bail us out? How are they going to do that? They'll figure out something. That's our job. You just can't accept that, can you? Can you chase ghosts? You blow things up with lasers? That's no job, son. That's a video game. This is no game, Dad. We didn't dig that hole in Brooklyn. Yeah, that was my fault. No, it wasn't. If they hadn't broken through there, they'd have come up somewhere else, and we'd still have them to deal with. Hey, you like your job, Dad, and I like mine. Guess that's true, son. Winston, what's that? Huh? <laughs> Slimer! <laughs> Hi, Winston. Man, is it good to see you. Slimer, this is my dad. Hi, my dad. Um, uh, hi, Slimer. Ha, wonderful. So here we have Roscoe Lee Brown playing the judge. He would pass away in 2007. The trial gets going, and ha ha, wouldn't you know it, Robert and Deborah can't agree on whether to ask the judge to change venues. They do that thing where one says yes, and the other says no at the same time, then they both reverse what they're saying at the same time. Ugh. In a remarkable display of realism, this scene at the courtroom was just entering a plea, and soon after, the court is adjourned. There's one of the cuter scenes in Redford's apartment, with just Deborah Winger working and the daughter present. The daughter needles Deborah for liking Robert Redford. Once the adults are alone, it's odd, because Robert and Deborah kiss. Sparks are not flying. But we're already back in the courtroom. This is a pretty gross turn of events here. Dun dun dun. 
Not only does the prosecution point out that Daryl Hannah confronted the late Terrence Stamp with a gun and left the gun in his room, but for two years she was sexually available to him, and this was her only means of supporting herself financially. Yuck. This new revelation is supposed to have the audience questioning whether Daryl Hannah is actually a murderer or not, but in reality it's just a speed bump in this nonsensical plot. And now, more investigating. Instead of just serving a subpoena for the records on Terrence Stamp's criminal art dealings, they go to, I think this is the city's hall of records, but they don't bother to say. The lawyers do this elaborate scheme where they commandeer someone's desk and phone and call up another floor saying that they've been waiting on Stamp's records for a while now. Then they go to the floor where the records are, and Redford BSs his way and says he's newly hired and where's his office. The woman he's speaking to is surprised, but this seems to check out when a guy shows up with a box full of Terrence Stamp's records and calls out for Redford by name. Once Redford and Winger have what they want, and the woman goes off to inquire her boss about this new hire, the lawyers take off with the documents. I guess this is a clever scene? I guess? But I don't get it. They have a legitimate reason to get those records. This isn't a villain's company that might stonewall them and withhold evidence either. It's just the city records department. I don't understand this. Also, too bad these genius lawyers didn't think to grab the actual incriminating documents from the warehouse when that blew up. Here's a guy we haven't seen in a while now. Redford and Winger are leaving her office when a guy in a car tries to run them down. It's the man with the gun, who's been popping up, but we haven't seen him clearly since he was watching Daryl Hannah's apartment and shot at Robert Redford. So this would-be killer tries to run them over. They dive out of the way, and the guy crashes his car. He takes off running, and Redford follows him, which turns out to be a dumb move when the guy finally decides to turn around and fire his gun. But as he's standing in the middle of the street, a taxi crashes into Mr. Trigger Happy, and he's splayed out on the middle of the street. Now this is dumb too. The taxi driver and other people gather around, very concerned for this unconscious man. That's nice. Good going, citizens. But you do notice he has a very large gun in his right hand, right? It's there in the shot. But apparently none of these people saw the man fire a gun 20 seconds ago, or that he's holding one right now. It's very obvious. I don't know why they don't notice that he has a gun on him. Robert Redford jogs over, and it's also very funny that he doesn't bother to kick away the gun or tell everybody, look, this man has a gun. He just fired at me. No, Redford rifles through the man's coat and takes his wallet. Then everybody starts yelling, hey, why are you robbing this guy? Then Redford takes off rather than explaining himself, or better yet, pointing out that this man has a gun and was just trying to kill him. Ugh. Meanwhile, Back where the guy's car crashed, he left his keys there. For some reason, Deborah Winger thinks it's a better idea to steal this guy's car rather than follow Redford on foot. Or, I don't know, try to track down a cop? So she hops in the villain's car, even though the movie has established she cannot drive. At one point she goes the wrong way down a one-way street. But now she rolls up to Redford, and she escapes with him when all the people are getting riled up, wondering why he robbed this guy laid out on the street. This whole sequence is very stupid. I get wanting an action scene, but when you're manufacturing these situations where a crowd is mad at you and you don't go, hey, 
you were all here. He was shooting at me. Look, he has a gun right now. Let's call the cops. I just don't find it fun. I find it stupid. And now I'm getting mad that these characters are all so stupid. Our heroes look inside the bad guy's wallet, and they find Forrester's business card. Again, Forrester is the guy who traded paintings and got a Picasso. It's very helpful that the hired killer kept a business card of the man he's working for. Every bad guy should do this. It's not incriminating at all, I'm sure of it. Well, after all this nonsense, what would you do? Would you call the cops? Maybe tell them to go pick up that guy with a gun? Or would you go investigate Forrester yourself, even though that's not your job? Bingo! The second choice! They go to Forrester's fancy apartment. Uh-oh, his door is open. Inside are paintings. One is a large portrait, and Deborah says it's a Chuck Close. I was unfamiliar with Chuck Close's work, but he'll paint giant portraits made up of interesting geometric shapes, or bubbles or something, to make a face. They look neat. That's Chuck Close. Also, he's paralyzed, but he still paints. Good for him. There's Andy Warhol. It's one of his soup cans. There's Piet Mondrian. I like his. It's just a bunch of squares and rectangles, many of them different colors. His works inspired the original Lego block colors, yellow and white and red and a particular blue. Mondrian died in 1944, and you see a lot of his style inspiring 1950s and 1960s fashion and room design in general. Oh, ha a small connection. If you play Ghostbusters the 2009 video game, the firehouse appears to have a Mondrian painting inside. It's by the staircase leading downstairs to the containment unit. And there's a glowing satanic image on the Mondrian painting some of the time. There you go, a Mondrian-Ghostbusters connection. Here in the movie, there's another Lichtenstein. I hate that guy. This one is called m, -M, -M from 1965. Go send the money to its actual original artist, Tony Abruzzo. Anyways, again, this is so weird. They've already broken into this apartment, and the door was left open, so they should know something is up. But Redford stupidly goes, hey, doesn't he have a big comfy bed? And he lays down on it. Then he notices, oh geez, there's a body underneath the sheets. It's Forrester shot through the head. Redford goes to the washroom to clean his hands, but someone's hiding in the shower. It's Daryl Hannah! Dun, dun, dun. We're late in the game, but the movie still wants to play like she is a viable suspect to these murders. But even Deborah Winger has had enough. She runs into the bathroom and sighs and almost goes, Oh, come on. Why was Daryl Hannah there? Well, she got a phone call telling her to go there. Okay. Why were you hiding in the bathroom? Uh, let's not ask that. These three really aren't putting things together. Looking outside a window, they see a larger sculpture of the one Terrence Stamp had in his office, the one he called uh, Bertolini. Hey, everyone's getting ideas now. The ladies take a taxi to Stamp's art gallery. Redford says he's going to get the cop they've been talking to, played by Brian Dennehy, and will meet them there with a search warrant. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why get Brian Dennehy specifically? There is no art case, not really. There's Daryl Hannah's murder trial. Nobody but the two lawyers are actually investigating the paintings. You don't need Brian Dennehy. You just need some cops. Any cops. Eh. They also don't bother calling cops to Forrester's apartment. A dead body here? Pfft. Who cares? 
Redford goes to a police station, presumably the same one he visited after the warehouse explosion. He asks around for Brian Dennehy, but sir, Brian Dennehy's been dead for 20 years. No, I'm, I'm lying there. Rather, Redford learns Dennehy was impersonating a real cop. Darn it. Redford races off to the art gallery where the women are already present. At the art gallery, they're holding a memorial for Terrence Stamp. Remember that he died as well? Daryl Hannah is on trial for his murder, remember? Anyway, there's a lot of murmurings when Daryl Hannah, the woman accused of murdering him, shows up. Even so, everyone just lets Daryl Hannah and Deborah Winger wander around wherever they feel like. They find that weird, colorful sculpture that they say is a Bertolini. Tap on it. Hey, it's hollow. I like it that the sculpture being hollow is considered weird. It's abstract art made out of plaster. It's not marble or anything, so why wouldn't it be hollow? That's not unusual. A man enters with a gun, and it's... Dun-dun-dun! Brian Dennehy. Yeah, this is some Scooby-Doo level of villain reveals here. The character's real name is Joseph Brock. Dun-dun-dun! The third man in the partnership with Terrence Stamp and Forrester. The same man Dennehy himself said went to jail and died from cancer. I think he personally killed Terrence Stamp and Forrester, but that fact isn't even made clear because he has also hired this would-be assassin to work for him. Well, with that kind of sorted out, he tells the women to break open the colorful sculpture, which is fun. They break open the sculpture and find a travel case inside, which of course must hold the painting inside that. Daryl Hannah rather stupidly grabs at it, saying, It's hers! And Dennehy gives her a slap. He punches out Deborah Winger, too. Man, a bad dude. Rather than kill the women, Dennehy has studied at the Batman Rogue School of Villainy. He leaves them alive, with the very real possibility that they can escape, and he sets the building on fire. Get it? The villains set fire to a building at the start of the movie. Again, it's like poetry, so if they rhyme... Mm -hmm. Every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. Hopefully it'll work. Thank you, George Lucas. All the people at the memorial notice the smoke, and they run out of the building. Robert Redford rolls up and runs into the burning building. This is... funny and frustrating. See, Brian Dennehy now has the painting and a gun. But oh no, he runs into Redford! Redford is in the way of his escape, so after firing a shot from his gun, Dennehy goes back into the flames, to find another way out. Do you see the problem with that? Dennehy has a gun. He could just get closer and kill Redford at point-blank range, or tell him to move. But instead, Dennehy goes, Oh no, it's the Sundance Kid! And he stupidly runs back in the direction of the fire. I don't get it. But I love this. Once they're surrounded by flames, then Dennehy and Redford tussle. Dennehy has a real problem remembering that he has a gun. Then something explodes. I have no idea what. And Dennehy goes flying off a higher level into a pool of water below. I love it. After forgetting things so many times in this movie, like the incriminating documents at the warehouse, the gun in that guy's hand, this time Redford remembers to grab the MacGuffin of a painting. He meets up with the women, who of course came too, like I said they would. They climb down a Giacometti statue. It's a tall, skinny statue. And they escape to outside. There are ambulances and fire trucks. This exterior fire is less exciting than the one at the start of the movie, but from the little extra spot on the disc, I believe this really was filmed on a New York street. 
Anyway, our heroes escape to outside, and nobody stops them when it looks like they might have stolen something from this very fancy art gallery. And nobody stops Daryl Hannah from opening up the case and crying over the painting her father made for her. Hey, are they going to show the painting now? Nope. Oh. Well, will they do that later, framed in Daryl Hannah's apartment or something? Nope. Wait, why not? Back to the courthouse, where all charges against Daryl Hannah are dropped. That's fine. I wonder how they proved her innocence, though. We're supposed to assume Brian Dennehy perished in the fall, and the fire, so you can't question him if he really killed anyone. All the lawyers have proven is that Daryl Hannah wasn't lying about the painting. There was a painting dedicated to her by her dad. But they haven't proven that she was innocent about Terrence Stamp's murder. Or Forrester's murder, if the lawyers even bothered to tell the cops about his body. Oh, right, there's a dead body at that address. We forgot to tell you about it. Now I get it. With Brian Dennehy dead, and the story from Hannah and the lawyers, the case is now messy enough that there's reasonable doubt that Daryl Hannah did anything wrong. But that's not how the prosecution explained things. A weaselly prosecutor, Robert Redford's rival who didn't get enough screen time, has to sheepishly say, oh, it's an airtight fact that Daryl Hannah is innocent. The DA's office screwed up so big on this one. Sorry. No, it's not a fact that Daryl Hannah is innocent. The case is just messier now, and you have to accept these people's words that Brian Dennehy was a murderer. Eh. Oh, but this gets better. Remember the other bad guy? The gunman. The guy who shot at Robert Redford and then was knocked down by a taxi and Redford and Winger just hightailed it out of there? He's still at large. They didn't send cops to arrest that guy. So I'm guessing he just got up, got to wander away through the streets of New York. That would-be killer is still at large, and the movie just ignores that fact entirely. Why is this movie this frustrating? The DA, Stephen Hill, comes back on the scene. Robert Redford, you son of a gun, all's forgiven. Come join my office again and we can have you run to become the new district attorney like I always planned. Never mind the fact that you still involved yourself with a woman who was under a criminal investigation, or that you did technically harbor a fugitive and embarrassed my office. Eh. But this is a movie, damn it. So how about your old job back with a promise of being the new DA? Nope. Robert Redford wants to stick to Deborah Winger. Again, never mind the fact that they have no romantic chemistry. Outside, the press are interviewing an innocent Daryl Hannah. Even this wrap-up is weird, where what she's honestly doing is lamely justifying her actions to the audience, about how she was sleeping with Terrence Stamp. Then Redford needs to justify to Winger his moment of weakness in sleeping with Hannah, and that's weird and sucks as well. We're seconds away from the end of the movie, and it's a bad sign when there's a need for the characters to justify their dumb actions. And then they kiss. Whoop-dee-doo. The song during the credits is Love Touch by Rod Stewart. Apparently Rod Stewart doesn't even like his own creation, calling it, quote, one of the silliest songs I've ever recorded, end quote. You know, I'm going to say the meanest thing I've ever said about Ivan Reitman. I believe Legal Eagles was something of an act of hubris. For three movies now, Meatballs, Stripes, and Ghostbusters, Ivan had unpolished scripts. Hell, with Meatballs, he almost didn't have a plot. These movies could have easily fallen apart, but the productions were saved by Bill Murray finding interesting things to do. 
Think of his it just doesn't matter scene in Meatballs. All his weird asides and manners in Dana's apartment for Ghostbusters. Not to mention that Ghostbusters had Rick Moranis save all the Lewis Tully and dog content, and you had the writers Dan and Harold on set to punch up the Ghostbusters script as needed. Heck, remember when they were filming and they didn't have an ending to Ghostbusters? Ivan had Dan and Harold to work that out. Ivan Reitman is a talented director, but he never had his scripts, never had his productions totally nailed down. I think he developed the sense that things would all come together, and that this movie, like his last three hits, would come together with a little bit of moxie on set and with good editing. And Legal Eagles became his first kick in the pants, showing him that's not always true. He had a script that wasn't funny enough, with supposedly smart characters making stupid choices and the mysteries having giant plot holes. Oh well, that can be saved by some funny acting. I mean, Stripes didn't entirely make sense, and the audience didn't mind. Ghostbusters uses wild logic, but people loved it. Unfortunately, the humor did not arrive to save this plot. And you know what? I don't blame the actors. Robert Redford performs fine, perfectly straight on. But you can see the problem. His character is Robert Redford. He's not going to be the butt of a joke. He's not about to do anything weird. And he doesn't really say any jokes. So why is this a comedy again? And the same is mostly true of Deborah Winger. Was she supposed to be the funny one? And Redford was the straight man? I can't tell, because they both act like the straight members in a comedy, and also inept at their jobs. Then you've got Daryl Hannah, who is supposed to be vulnerable and mysterious and a bit of a femme fatale, but I've said it before, she doesn't emote very well. There's also no jokes about her. It doesn't help that her actions are nonsensical. She's always showing up at Robert Redford's apartment for no reason. She tries to threaten Terrence Stamp, and that's just a bad idea. And there's more! We don't have jokes, we don't have characters behaving in a clever manner, and we have a mystery with giant plot holes. I'm not going to say every movie needs to make perfect, absolute sense, but there are so many problems here, it stretches credulity. Why are they such bad lawyers? Why did they not disarm that gunman or get a cop to arrest him? And a very real point, why is Brian Dennehy so fixated on stealing that one special painting? At one point, he kills Forrester, and he had the opportunity to steal millions worth of other paintings. He doesn't do this, instead going after Daryl Hannah's secret painting that he claims is his. It's so stupid when you realize the bad guy isn't making any sense. He had millions of dollars worth of other paintings right there for him. Speaking of which, the entire villains, as in all three of them, their art scheme makes no sense. They murdered and stole that father's work at the start of the movie. Okay, what were they planning on doing with it? They collected insurance money from the paintings, sure, but then why the horse trading with the paintings after the fact? They can't sell those paintings later, because that would expose their lie. Why did Terrence Stamp and Forrester trade paintings? No reason, other than that's what happened in the real-life Rothko case I told you about near the top of the podcast. See, that's the problem. The writers are taking elements from the Rothko case, selling and trading valuable art to try to cash in years later, but it doesn't make any sense in the context of murdering an artist and stealing his work. The whole mystery is a dud. This entire script is half-baked. So... Sorry to say, but I'm chalking this movie partly up to hubris. Mike Ovitz, for one, 
thinking movie audiences would be as passionate as he is about art, and the hubris of thinking he could cobble together a good movie out of his own will. But also Ivan Reitman's hubris of having a mega hit a couple years ago, and that all came together, so why shouldn't this one? He didn't realize he was so lucky with his previous movies, and he can't rely on every actor to workshop their way through weak material the way he had been doing with his friends. Those were Saturday Night Live National Lampoon folks, but here you've got very good actors who are used to delivering on good dialogue. They're not improvisers or comedians in the same way. I think this was a sobering lesson. $40 million. More than Ghostbusters. Not that it looks it. And it only made a bit of money. Domestically, it didn't quite crack $50 million in ticket sales. So when you factor in a movie theater's, you know, 40 or 45% cut, Legal Eagles only made money when you factor in the worldwide market. I think this was an expensive lesson to learn. Things are not always going to work out, and you should work harder at making sure your scripts and your entire movie productions has a rock-solid foundation. Let's look at the big board. Ghostbusters is Ivan Reitman's best movie to date. Following that is Stripes, then Meatballs, and you know what? His short film Orientation is better than this. So Orientation, then Legal Eagles, and finally Cannibal Girls, which likewise suffered because Ivan Reitman didn't really have a script nailed down, just a collection of ideas. Legal Eagles is Ivan Reitman's second worst film to date. My final condemnation of this movie, I figured out what they were going for. It's supposed to be Charade, starring Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. Both of those movies are supposed to be romantic comedies, only, you know, Charade actually is funny and clever and has chemistry and fantastic dialogue. But in both, you've got everyone looking for a treasure, and there's a group of thieves who all betrayed one of their own, and now that thief is supposedly coming back from the dead and kills off his old accomplices. Seriously, Jim Cash and Jack Epps were thinking of Charade when they wrote this movie, but sad to say it's nowhere near as smart or as charming. Sorry to be down this go-round, folks. I'm Ross May, and you can follow me on Twitter at Ross May Writer, or go to rossmaywriter.com to find my email there. Next up, we're looking at Twins, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, and maybe the film Ivan Reitman has the most affection for outside of the original Ghostbusters. See you later, but for now we'd better split up. We can do more damage that way.